We take our sense of smell for granted, and yet perhaps we shouldn't. But what if you do have issues or your patients have issues with smell? Is there anything you can do about it? Hi, welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me is Dr. Chris Kelly. Dr. Kelly is an expert in this area, and she is basically a leading advocate for what we call smell training. She's in the United States visiting from the U.K., on one of the first U.S. educational smell training session tours, and she's nice enough to join us in the program. Before we introduce Dr. Kelly to the program, approximately a quarter of U.S. adults report a problem with their sense of smell. It affects their safety, their health, their well-being, and the most severe of smell disorders is anosmia. That's the complete loss of a person's sense of smell. They cannot detect odors that tell us about fire or food flavor nor the bond-promoting scent of a newborn baby's head. All the things that are pleasurable, they're not there. So first of all, Chris, thank you for joining us and and taking the time to be on this program. Uh, You're quite welcome. I'm delighted to be here. But I must say straight away that I'm not a doctor. I wish I was. uh, I've lost my sense of smell, and I've become very interested in smell training and have uh, educated myself and taken courses and been on perfumery courses and so on but I am not a medical doctor. Well, let me tell you something, Chris. Some of our best guests have not been physicians, and it doesn't matter. What we're always looking for here is information, and clearly I'd be willing to bet if you took my knowledge of the sense of smell, put it against yours. I may know a few anatomical things they taught me at med school, but then I'm pretty much out of the loop. So from my standpoint, and I'm sure many of our physician listeners, this is going to be great. First of all, you became interested because you had an issue with your own sense of smell. Tell me what happened. Um, I had a bad sinus infection, and I woke up one morning, and I had absolutely no sense of smell. Um, I, this is not terribly uncommon, but most people, when they lose their sense of smell in a cold, uh, when, as soon as the inflammation passes, they go back to their sort of normal level of, of sense of smell. But in my case, it didn't, it didn't come back. And I uh, went to my GP and um, I got a course of antibiotics because I, I did have a very severe sinus infection. Um, but uh, after a couple of uh, more weeks of not being able to smell, I was referred to an ENT who then gave me a course of steroids. And uh, he informed me that probably if the steroids didn't work, I really wouldn't have much hope of getting my sense of smell back. This was devastating to me. Uh, I think that uh, some people who lose their sense of smell manage quite well with it but I was one of the unlucky people who found it just um, a a terrible and a unique kind of bereavement. I would would describe it that way because it is one of those things that is just inexplicable. And for all kinds of problems, one one of the best things to do is talk about it. And when you really can't find the words to describe what this is like, it makes it makes the, the, the difficulty that much worse. It's interesting. I do want to digress for a second. You actually have a fascinating career. You're a zooarchaeologist. I have to ask you, first of all, what is a zooarchaeologist in, in that area of interest? What do you do? Yeah, I have an MSc in archaeological science. Um, I was interested in animal bones, so I used to look at animal bone assemblages from archaeological sites and then kind of work out um, what were the people doing, what what was their economy based on. So were they uh, a sheep economy or a goat economy? Were they fishermen? Were they transhuman? Were they moving around with the seasons? Um, We had a couple of exotic species in our assemblages, which was telling us that the people that we were learning about were um, in trade relationships with uh, different areas uh, by boat. 
Um, so we, it was a, it was an interesting kind of thing. And I, what I, what fascinated me most about it was the kind of detective work involved. So I, I always had that. I'm that kind of a person. And when I lost my sense of smell, and I finally made my way to uh, an ENT surgeon who proposed smell training to me. I thought to myself as I sat in the train for my three-hour journey back to Tunbridge Wells in Kent in the UK where I used to live, I sort of asked myself, what, what, can I, what kind of quantification can I apply to this really difficult subject of smell? Is there any way to quantify? I mean, I knew I was at zero, but I thought if I start to improve, how can I kind of um, assign markers to that so that I could recognize any improvement if there was any, if I was going to be one of the lucky people that got something back. I can see your frustration because, you know, for anyone who has lost something they have, you know, you, you have something and you're used to it and then it's gone and, and, and it is very frustrating. So you, you were able to more or less, I guess, because of the natural curiosity you have and the stick you were able to kind of figure out a way to attack this more aggressively, I guess. And so what have you learned? I mean, what, like for our patients who maybe have issues with smell and the sense of smell, what, what can you offer us as far as treating them or suggestions? And when, when right. you speak to great groups like you did today, I know you, you were in Philadelphia and you were at the Monell Science Center, which is a national, uh, a nationally recognized uh, brain trust of people who are experts right. in smell. I mean, they're from all over the world. They come there. You were there. What did you say? What did you share? I shared the technique that was first described by Professor Thomas Hummel in 2009, um, and this technique involved taking four essential oils, just like you would buy them in the health food store, for instance, um, and the, the four essential oils that he proposed in his original paper were lemon, eucalyptus, clove, and rose, and they were meant to represent a broad spectrum of, of smells. And uh, in this study that he did, he had the subjects um, expose themselves to these smells um, uh, twice a day for a couple of minutes each, and then monitored their progress to see whether or not, um, after a certain number of weeks, whether they were faring any better. Since that original study, a number of other studies have been done, and they all seem to suggest that this repeated exposure to um, what are really strong smell. I mean, you you can make the um, you can make the concoction as strong as you like. I'll tell you in a moment the way I do it. Um, but the repeated exposure to these smells actually does seem to improve the patient's sense of smell. Is it like you're training uh, the sense of smell in a sense, like almost like a a runner going out and working on and getting a little faster and faster? Is that what's well, happening? I suppose so, but I think a better analogy would be, you know, you have to imagine when you lose your sense of smell, you've had damage to the nerves that serve the olfactory apparatus. So really what you're doing, it's a bit like physiotherapy after you've had a stroke. And we all have seen people, pictures of people or videos of people um, sort of, you know, getting there into the physio area and trying to take the first steps, it's really hard work because you, you're asking your brain to do something that it's that the, the pathways just are not where they used to be. And um, this is why it is really important if you are going to smell train that you stick with it and it, it doesn't happen instantly. So it's this is a matter of, you know, the most recent study 
um, followed patients over a period of, I think, 56 weeks. And it does take that long. Um, I know I've spoken to plenty of patients who have contacted me through my website. Uh, I have a website where I just post information about smell training. Um, I post references to recent articles. I describe the technique. Um, you know, it's all just free information. Um, and what patients say to me is, um, it's really not for me. I tried it and it doesn't work. But that's, I, I, I always say to them, you know, you wouldn't learn to play the piano practicing five minutes twice a day in two weeks. It takes time. And you are asking your brain to do something new. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's all about forming new neural pathways. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Chris Kelly. We're talking about smell training. Um, I'm on your website right now, smell training for functional anosmics. Maybe you can give the address as well. Yes, the, the address of the website is smelltraining.co.uk. Smelltraining.co.uk. And it is, it's actually very, it, it's a fun site. Um, it, it's easy to read. And you, you did something very well, which is, you don't blow people away with technical terms. You're trying to communicate with them, which I think is the key when you try to do things like this. And, you know, we have patients. I have a number of patients. Um, a spouse will come in, a significant other will come in and say, you know, I wanted to ask you about my, my husband. Um, he doesn't seem to smell things. He, he smells caustic things. He smells gasoline. He'll smell a uh, fire, those things. But he never smells roses. He never smells my perfume. He never uh, smells if I pass gas. I mean, I don't have any of those senses of smell that my husband has. You know, what do you suggest? And I've mentioned Monell and other people, but what is there they do? Is, this the, is that the type of person who should have smell training, or do they get a workup first where you make sure nothing else is going on? Like I said, I'm not a doctor, so I would always recommend that someone sees their, you know, their primary care physician or, you know, is asked to be referred to an ENT surgeon as there are many ways to lose your sense of smell, and a virus is just one of them. Um, and therefore, I think it's probably worth getting that checked out. You know, is perhaps the, the patient has an obstruction, they have polyps, something like that. That's usually what we see in our world. We see polyps, and they might take a nasal steroid or whatever, they would right. get the advice, and, and then they start to get a degree of, of smell because that actually has improved that blockage, and then they, right. they say they're okay. Um, so that's not something you're going to train your way through. This is no, more... because in that case, it's a mechanical obstruction, and once the mechanical obstruction is removed, then the, the patient's sense of smell is, is intact. But, uh, you know, if you have a brain injury, you can shear off those, those nerves, um, you know, and, and also the brain injury can occur um, in a couple of different places, which, which will you know, have, have an effect on how, how permanent the smell loss is. Um, so I think I, I would always suggest that people see their doctor. I think that's always a good place to start. And by the way, on your website, that is the very first thing you say. But I, you also talk about keeping a record of smell training. You explain Dresden theory and, and those sorts of things. Right. Uh, the thing that attracted me to this, I mean, obviously, you do a program like this, we get lots of potential guests and ideas. This is something that comes up. I'm not, this isn't something that most of us in our primary care practices you know, are going to come up every day, but it comes up periodically. Somebody just says, yeah. I have a problem with the sense of smell, and I know what I do. I reflexly, I reflexly always have gone to the sinus treatments and to the ENT, and I worry about 
this issue, like I worry about people with headache, you know, when they don't come back, you know, there's a tendency to say they're better, but it also can be they don't come back because you didn't really help them. And that's what I always worry right. about. You know, so you're presenting something that's a different option that at least we can tell people about and say, listen, we're going to send you here for this. It's probably the overwhelming cause. However, you know, this is another option. But the other thing I'm getting from you is get a very good history from the patient. That, yeah. You know, were things fine? And then all of a sudden you had a, you know, a viral infection or something like that and, and it triggered something. Um, I do want to, I only got a couple more minutes, but I did want to ask you a okay. few more things. You, you, okay, so today you're in a session and you're dealing with health professionals and others. And um, in fact, I got a report from that and they were just thrilled with it. Um, what are the key points that you share with them that maybe with a minute or so to go you could share with our experts? I would recommend, I've tried all different kinds of ways of taking the essential oil and, 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 and how do I use them for smell training. I have decided that the best thing that I find is to go on to, um, you know, eBay or Amazon and buy yourself some one-ounce amber jars, wide-mouth jars. They're not very big. Um, they might be the sort of the size of an egg overall, kind of that, that sort of sh- uh, size and shape. They're not terribly heavy, and you take these jars and you put a bit of absorbent paper in the bottom of it. I've, I've got a hole punch that punches out really big circles of paper. I drop one of these in the bottom of the jar, and I put about four or five drops of the essential oil on it. The amber uh, glass keeps the essential oil from degrading. So essential oils are very um, susceptible to uh, being degraded by light, for instance, so it's good to keep what you're using. That's why essential oils always come in brown bottles. So you want an amber jar to decant a small amount of the essential oil into it. And then I always tell people um, four oils are prescribed, but that doesn't mean that you only need to have four jars. Keep four jars in your kitchen, four four jars in your car, keep them in your handbag, by your desk, um, in the bathroom, wherever you find yourself going, and try and make it a habit. I think one of the problems with anosmics is that um, after a while, they get out of the habit of smelling things, both um, consciously, that is to say, I pick up a lemon, I put it to my nose, um, as well as the kind of passive smelling that you do when you're walking down the street and suddenly you think to yourself, oh, I smell leaves burning. So what you're really trying to do with this, not only are you going to these oils a couple of times a day, but you're also getting into the habit of smelling again. And, you know, all this is really subtle on a neurological level. Nobody really knows exactly what's happening, but the research does support the evidence that this is patients that are doing this and doing it over the long term are faring better than patients that don't. Chris Kelly, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today on ReachMD. I really appreciate the time you took and the insight you provided. And, um, you know, and I don't want to undersell this. Who we're talking to is actually one of the leading lay advocates for smell training. And in fact, I think you gave today, it was one of the first ever U.S. educational smell training sessions for physicians in the public. So for taking the time to join us, I, I greatly appreciate it. I know you had a busy day. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you, everyone, for listening.